Welcome to the Academy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing rich content for the purpose of spiritual growth. I'm your host, Claire McKeever Burgett, and I serve as the Associate Director of the Academy for Spiritual Formation, an international ministry of the Upper Room. The Academy creates transformative space for people to connect with God, self, others, and creation for the sake of the world. The Academy podcast is one offering from a rich well of content sprung from deep relationship building with wisdom guides, pilgrim participants, and wholehearted leaders we've had the honor of knowing throughout the past 36 years. Thank you to all of those who've joined us on the journey. And if you're new with us today, welcome. We're glad you're here. To learn more about the Academy, visit academy.upperroom.org. This month's podcast features teaching from Rabbi David Horowitz at Two-Year Academy 41 in Alabama, where he taught on Hebrew spirituality. With his sharp wit, expansive knowledge, and deep compassion, Rabbi David offers us a place to listen, learn, and let go into the presence and breath of God. Rabbi David has served congregations from Indiana to Queensland, Australia. His most notable service was as rabbi at Temple Israel in Akron, Ohio, from 1983 to 2001, where he still serves as rabbi emeritus and was recently celebrated there on the 50th anniversary of his ordination into the rabbinate. Also serving as the national president of PFLAG from 2010 to 2014, an organization for the family and allies of the LGBTQ community, Rabbi David expanded an equality in the workplace for LGBTQ people into faith communities. He is active in building interfaith alliances and working for justice wherever he is. From a recent article written about Rabbi David in the Cleveland Jewish News, the rabbi said the most meaningful thing of his career was serving the Temple Israel congregation. There will be lots of stuff in the bio, a lot of organizations I belong to and I chaired, he said. They're all there. They were all important. They were all good things. But for me, what I wanted is people to say he cared about me. To me, that's the highlight of my career, being able to serve in the congregation. Rabbi David still resides in Akron, Ohio with his wife, Toby, and spends his time gushing about his grandchildren traveling, reading, writing, and thankfully for us, teaching at the Academy. Academy faculty since 2004, Rabbi David is indeed a friend and teacher to us all. Listen on, beloveds, and enjoy. In this case, this timeline begins with creation. The first words of Genesis are incredibly difficult to translate. But a sheep bara Elohim The problem is, is Bereshit in the beginning is written as a construct, so it means in the beginning of something. The of is not there. So King James and the old uh, JPS translations all began with in the beginning God created. Not a good translation. So then they went back to the uh, boards and they said, when God created. 
which ignores beginning. And so I noticed that in the Revised Standard Version of the Bible, did, did I mention I bought this? <laughs> Bet I did, yeah. They punt entirely and they translate it, in the beginning when God created. Uh, and a little footnote here said, uh, or when God began to create, or in the beginning God created, uh, or while this, they don't know either. <laughs> but at some moment in time, we take as for granted in the religious community that there was a moment when the universe as we know it began to be created. And we know it's still expanding. So that was the beginning of that creation. What came before that? According to the Hebrew Bible, there was tohu vavohu, the Hebrew words. Again, normally translated void and without form. I always thought it was stuff that floated in Japanese soup until I was corrected. <laughs> uh, we don't really know what that means either, okay? It's a hapax legomena as it's used here. It has no other occurrences as a, a phrase tohu vavohu. So, so we can't derive a meaning from somewhere else. Is this creatio et nihilo? Why not? I mean, it's as good as any other theory. Uh, was there substance? Why not? It's as good as any other theory. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is we have no idea of what happened before the moment of creation. Now, as time goes on, and please do not take the spatial lines here seriously. I mean, I'm just arbitrarily drawing them. But as time goes on, we get to the present moment. So everything on this side is history. Everything on this side is the future. I would say when we give thanks to God, we are dealing with history. When we express our hopes, we're dealing with the future. And that's a, a dichotomy of worship that I think sometimes we lose. Thanks is reflection, hope is expectation. Present moment is all we have at any given time. That's all we have is the present moment. And then, somewhere along the way, according to Jewish tradition, there will be the Yomot HaMashiach, the days of the coming of the Messiah. Judaism is a messianic religious system. Uh, not necessarily the same as Christian messianism, but nonetheless a messianic system. And I'm going to make a, a case that maybe we're not so different. Because in this case, with the coming of the Messiah, the rabbis taught that the olam haba would come into being. The olam. I'm writing it because some of you like to take notes. I don't know why. <sighs> You're not going to be tested, so, you know, don't worry about it. Uh, the Olam Haba, the world to come. This is the hope that we will get to this Olam Haba. With the coming of the Messiah, we will get to that Olam Haba. Now, this must be universal. I can't emphasize that enough. This must be universal. If the Messiah comes to Akron, Ohio, 
to get to our congregation, she has to pass a whole slew of of churches. And therefore, it can't be Jews saved, Christians not, or Muslims not, or atheists not, or, or pagans not. It's got to be a universal bringing of the word, and we use it all the time in liturgy, the bringing of shalom. Shalom is much more than just the absence of war. Shalom is a wholeness, a completeness, a fullness, a fullness of life, if you will. And that's the hope. The hope is is that we will get to a time where the world will, yes, not have war, but that they also will have this wholeness and completeness, which we imagine might be God's kingdom on earth terminologies that we both use, the notion of God's kingdom on earth. It's the party. Now, I stole that from Tony Campella. A a lot of years ago, my congressman called and said, Rabbi, would you like to go to the president's prayer breakfast in Washington? So I said, okay. He said, you got to pay your own way. Okay. So I went, have any of you been to that? I'm sorry. Uh, (laughs) There's two days before it, which are study sessions, and, and it's all very heavily evangelical Christian. The year I was there, there were about almost 8,000 people there, and there was one Muslim and me. The Muslim was there because it was the year of the uh, first Iraq war. So they needed to have a Muslim there. And me, because my congressman thought I'd like it. (laughs) So those first couple days had some real, real challenges. Everybody there knew that by the end of the time there I would be Christian. And let me tell you, they worked very hard on making that happen. And then Tony Capella got up, and he talked, and all of a sudden, it could resonate with me what he was saying, because he was talking about the party. Now, he was talking in terms of the second coming of Jesus, uh, and I'm thinking in terms of the first coming of the Messiah, but we're talking about exactly the same thing. We will all be at the party. We will all be able to celebrate on God's kingdom on earth, and that became the goal. And so I went back and I had a, uh, a program that I did with the church soon after that. And I asked them to write down on a sheet of paper everything that they hoped for with the second coming of Jesus. Now, I must tell you, not everybody believed in the second coming of Jesus. So that was a problem. In fact, I got invited by a minister in Dayton, Ohio, to do an Advent sermon. What the hell do rabbis know about Advent? <laughs> I had to go online to find out what it was, you know. <laughs> so online it says it's, uh, you know, the expectation that, 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 the, that the Messiah will come again. And, and I gave this, I thought, really pretty decent sermon about how we match up in this area. And I, it was three sermons, same sermon three times. One was in the evening on Saturday night and then two on Sunday. 
So I got through Saturday night, nobody threw rotten tomatoes at me. And then I got up there Sunday morning and I gave the same sermon. And afterwards the minister came and said, yeah, it's a good sermon, but I don't believe in the second coming. So I changed it to say, some people believe in the second coming. For us, the Messiah has not come. It is the hope for future. Now the problem with this model is that after the Messiah comes, Jewish tradition sees the end of the world. Not a threat, not a punishment. It was tohu vavohu before, it will go back to tohu vavohu again. So that's a linear timeline. The rabbis had no concept of infinity. If there was a beginning to them, there had to be an end. So the olam haba, this period, how long will it be? I can find you midrash that says it's a thousand years old. I can find you midrash that says it ends in a moment. I can find midrash that says almost anything you want it to say. And so I have no idea of how long that period would be. I am comfortable with the idea of that's what we're working for. But it is this olam haba, this world to come. However, a group came along and they started teaching a concept that there is salvation in heaven and if you have the keys to the gate, you get in. But we didn't have any keys. We didn't have any heaven. We had Shemayim, we had the heavens, you can go out and, and look at the heavens. The biblical passages use words like Sha'ol and Gehenna to kind of indicate some kind of a, of a netherworld. But Sha'ol is, is fairly clearly a, a burial concept. Gehenna is a place in Ohio. <laughs> Deserving of its name. But, but in Israel, Gehenna was a place of pagan child sacrifice. You can still visit Gehenna. And, and so I'm sure some mother must have said, if you don't behave, I'm going to send you to Gehenna. But uh, in, in any case, we didn't have a hell concept. And so the rabbis had to compete. And here's what they did. They said when a person dies... And 100% of the people who go to the academy die. It's a very bad statistic. <laughs> when a person dies, they said, the soul of that person goes to Gan Eden. Literally the Garden of Eden, Gan Eden. Some place, I drew it up because it's easier, it could, it, it's not spatial. It's, it is an existence of the soul. One of my professors used to call this cold storage for the soul. <laughs> is it conscious? I can find you Midrash that says it's conscious. Is it unconscious? I can find you Midrash that says it's unconscious. Um, what do you do up there? I can find you Midrash that says... You eat great big fish. <laughs> yeah, remember, remember from the book, Midrash reflects the time of the people writing. So in a time of hunger, the idea of Gan Eden being a place of being 
able to, to feast is there. Uh, some of the Midrash says that Gan Eden is a place where you study Torah all day long. <sighs> What's unique about this is that it's not judgmental. All souls go to Gan Eden. All souls. The wicked, the good, the student, the slackered, all souls go to Ghanaian. Now, it takes a while to get to Ghanaian. So you kind of have to help it along. And I'm going to talk about some liturgy that kind of boosts the chances of those you love making it a little faster. But everybody, said the rabbis, everybody makes it in a year. All souls get there in a year. And so it is the custom in Judaism to unveil, to dedicate tombstones for our dead 11 months after the death. Not a year, 11 months. Because nobody wants to say it took their parents a whole year to get there. So yeah, 11 years, okay, we'll cut it off there. And, uh, and I got to tell you, that is the reason, and nobody in the Jewish tradition generally knows why. That's how it started. And so you've got Gan Eden. Not judgmental, we're all there. Until the Messiah comes. When the Messiah comes, there will be the resurrection of the dead. Body and soul being resurrected from the grave. The basic theory is, is that this will happen in Jerusalem. So it is the custom among Jews to bury facing Jerusalem, so they got to get there underground. They know the direction, anyhow. I would like to open a Krispy Kreme donut shop <laughs> in Jerusalem on the day of uh, resurrection. They, they really have sucky donuts over there, so, you know. The resurrection is not universal. This is judgmental. You don't have to be Jewish to get there. You don't have to eat Reuben's rye bread or corned beef on rye with mustard. Folks, white bread, lettuce, and mayonnaise is an act of anti-Semitism on a corned beef sandwich. <laughs> don't ever do it. No, 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 no. So not everybody's going to make it. The unrepented sinner will not make it. Those who don't believe in resurrection, the rabbi said, would also not make it. I have a list. I have a list. If they're there and I'm there, I'm going to be really upset. <laughs> Most of them served on my board of trustees at one time or another. But it really is difficult to get knocked out. And again, it's universal. It's universal. The Talmud has a wonderful statement that kept us be from becoming a fundamentalism. The Talmud said, the righteous of all people have a place in the olam haba, a place in the world to come. And so once that was in there, once that was accepted within Jewish tradition, it kept us from needing to be proselytic. 
we were in the biblical days, okay? Let's, let's be honest about it. We were out there trying to get those uh, 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 pagans, those idolaters to give up their evil ways. But by the Talmud is written, we are now accepting the righteous of all people having a place in this world to come. So that's the flow. Tough to get knocked out. You really got to be an unrepented sinner to get knocked out. But it's possible. It's possible. And then the end comes. What we don't have is a concept of hell as it developed in Christianity. It's, it's just not there. We don't have a word for it. We have Shaul. We have Gehenna. We can, we can tie those down. But there's no particular Hebrew word for hell. Uh, and so if you don't have a phrase for it, you really can't talk about a concept that, that, that's growing around it. So we don't have this eternal punishment place. What I'd like to say is that those up here who don't get resurrected, as some of you know, one of the ways you discipline kids is you give them a timeout. They're in a permanent timeout. They can't go to the party. The party's going but they can't go. And so that becomes a sense of punishment, if you will, within the model that I have here. I have used the term God created. God will bring the resurrection, will bring the Messiah. Messiah, the son of David, the same concept that exists in, in, in Christianity. But what is God? And that's what we're going to deal with next. Because I don't know. There are numerous names in Hebrew for God. Um, Elohim. Christians like Elohim because it's in the plural form. <laughs> I always told you it was the Trinity. Uh, <laughs> they, they, they come up quickly on that one. But Elohim is a generic name for gods. Uh, Okay, so the gods of the Egyptians, the gods of the idolaters are Elohim as well. And I suspect when they adopted this for the God of Israel, they just adopted the generic word. And uh, it's, uh, I'm going to write it with a, a capital, but it could also be a little, little G God. The creation story is Breshit bara Elohim et Hashemayim It is used there as a name for God. So we've got this one. We've got ale, just ale. We've also got um, Yah. This one you're familiar with, very familiar with, because in your worship, there is hallelujah. Praise God. Hallelujah. So you've got yah in hallelujah, most commonly in the Psalms, but other places as well. There are a myriad of them, but the one I want to concentrate is on this one. In Judaism, we call it the Tetragrammaton, the four letters of God's name. 
yud hey vav hey. We're not positive as to how this was pronounced. Remember that Hebrew is a vowelless language. Hebrew does not have vowels. Vowels were added later, around the 7th, 8th century or so, by a group known as the Masoretes. They put in vowels in the Bible to protect the correct pronunciation of the words in the Bible. And so they put vowels in. But before that, it was a vowelless language. And so many scholars like to see this as Yahweh or Yahweh. The root is the root for, the, uh, for being. Hayah means to be. Paul Tillich's ground of being might very well work into this theology. And so you've got this word that may have been pronounced Yahweh. Now I must tell you that early on, Jewish tradition stopped pronouncing the name of God. And they did so because we have that darn commandment that says you shall not take God's name in vain. So rather than take a chance that that would happen, they stopped pronouncing it altogether. And somebody along the way noticed that there were vowels that had been put in here. And the vowels were this, and this, and this. And they looked at it and they said, hmm, we know what that says. It says, Yehovah. And so we got the term Yehovah or Jehovah. Problem is, is that it's a mistake. What the Masoretes did is they put in the vowels for Adonai. That's what they started using instead of God. It means my Lord, Adonai. The vowels for Adonai are here, here, and here. And that's called a kare. It's written one way. We say it another way. And that was a mastery. That's not only in this word that they did that. They did that in other places. They couldn't clean up God's grammar. That wasn't a good thing to do. So instead, they put vowels in a different place showing God's right, but pronounce it the way we tell you anyhow. I mean, you know. And, and so this is just a reminder to use the term Adonai. I'm going to suggest another direction here. The book that I normally assign at an uh, uh, academy is a wonderful, difficult book called God Was in This Place and I, I Did Not Know. The I, I is important. Uh, written by Larry Kushner, not the same as uh, uh, Harold Kushner, but Larry Kushner, who was a classmate of mine. And if you buy it, I'd be grateful because he needs the money. Uh, <laughs> Larry points out in his book that all of these letters, yud hey vav hey, are vowel letters. I mean, we don't have vowels. But the yud usually indicates the sound is going to be e or a, most common if the yud is there. If the hey is there, usually uh, seems to uh, uh, give an ah sound. It indicates an ah sound is going to be there. The vav is either o or u. O or u is, is, is what it designates. And then you have the ah at the end. And Larry says, what you've got is vowel letters. And the best you can do is 
blessed art thou. <sighs> the very breath of life. <sighs> God planted into the human being the <sighs> of life. <sighs> the divinity of life. And I love that image. I love that image. We're no longer hung up on a pronunciation. We're no longer hung up on, on a meaning. Now we've got the expressive moment that we say is God. the honor of being present when Rabbi David offered this teaching at Academy 41 last November. As a participant in the two-year academy in Alabama, I sat holding my breath for much of Rabbi David's lectures, not because I was afraid of what he was going to say. No, I held my breath not out of fear, but out of eager anticipation of what I was going to learn and how what he shared and the way he shared it would open me up and turn me around. Rabbi David and I became fast and close friends that week. We keep in touch via phone and email to this day, and I had the distinct privilege of representing the Academy at his 50th anniversary celebration of his ordination in Akron in June. Claiming him as my rabbi, I also claim to be part Jewish, which I would argue all of us who claim to follow Jesus are part Jewish. Without Judaism, we have no Jesus, after all. But there's something about the way Rabbi David invites us into the Hebrew text, the Hebrew language, the Hebrew way of life that again opens me up and turns me around. I find myself breathing more deeply when I hear him teach because of its profound openness, the universal nature of shalom, that it's for every single body. No one is left out. This is something I can live with in a world built on exclusion and division. This is something I must live with in order to truly know the breath of God and then to be able to share the breath of God with others. In the season of Advent, when we wait expectantly for Jesus to join us earthside through the groans and sighs and breaths of Mother Mary, May we listen closely to Rabbi David and the ancient wisdom he shares. God planted into the human being the awe of life, the breath, the divinity of the living. To hear more from faculty and wisdom guides like Rabbi David Horowitz, join us at the next short-term or two-year academy. For more information, visit academy.upperroom.org.